WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to City Talk. If you love the paranormal and ghosts and goblins and everything else, this show is right up your alley because we've got a real expert. His name is Sam Baltrusis. And he has written so many books on the paranormal, I can't begin to tell you how many or what they are. But Sam, it's, it's great to talk with you, and I've always been fascinated with this. Now, tell me when you first experienced anything paranormal in your life that got you turned on to this field. Hi, Ken. It's great to chat with you again. So, yeah, so I basically um, was a journalist for about 20 years or so. Uh, I've always wrote about paranormal themes, uh, stories for Halloween. So it was always like the spooky stories of Halloween. Uh, but my first experience actually started when I was a child. Uh, I grew up in Florida and uh, there was a, a moment where I, uh, my, my grandfather passed and I, um, I actually saw him sitting on the corner of my bed and I was almost like the, the kid from The Shining. So I had uh, <clears throat> an, a, the, a gift uh, to communicate with spirits at a young child, as a young child, but then I, I got scared and I put on what we call paranormal blinders. So I spent about 20 years uh, being afraid of the paranormal, being afraid of ghosts. Uh, I had experience soon after seeing my grandfather that terrified me and I just kind of just, I put on the blinders and didn't deal with ghosts for many years, even though things that happened to me uh, were still, I still had ghost encounters, even though I didn't want to believe that they were actually uh, like something inexplicable. So uh, yeah, it's been an ongoing process, but when I started writing my books back in 2012, so it's the 10 year anniversary of me writing paranormal themed books, I, um, I just said, you know what, it's time to accept it. And I um, started writing very uh, cautiously because I was a journalist and I didn't want to lose that credibility as a journalist. Uh, so you'll see the words alleged a lot in my first few books, uh, allegedly haunted uh, hotel in Boston, as opposed to the very haunted hotel in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the, in the meeting that we had when we were all together through Perkins, one of the things you mentioned was that you were somehow related to Lizzie Borden. Do you think that that had anything to do with any of your ghostly experiences? I personally think that I was called to New England. I think that, uh, so I grew up in Florida. I, I moved here in the 90s for college. And I always was kind of pulled to the Salem witch trials uh, as a historian and also to the, the Lizzie Borden murders pulled to it, but also tentatively kind of scared by it as well. I felt really connected to it and almost to the point where I would have dreams and uh, just really was afraid about the Lizzie Borden case most of my life because of those haunting dreams. And so I felt like that, that I was being called by the spirits to New England. Uh, and and it, it took my whole life to kind of figure out the connection. So I actually didn't realize that I was related to Lizzie Borden until about two and a half, three years ago. Uh, and I'm also related to uh, the Putnam family who were the major accusers during the Salem witch trials. So I have uh, multiple connections to people in New England. I just knew that I was being pulled to New England and I didn't really know why I was being pulled to New England. Now, I don't want to get off the track, but the Lizzie Borden murders are often discussed, I guess, by a lot of people. Why do you think she did what she did? Or did she do it? Yeah, it's to the point now where so I've I've done multiple TV shows and written multiple books about the case, and I think that the thing that I always try to stay away from is uh, you know the who done it part of it. Um, I try to focus on why the why done it, like why why did this murder uh, mur double homicide take place on Fall River in 1892, and I strongly feel that. Uh, after doing The Curse of Lizzie Borden, which was uh, a documentary that I filmed for Discovery Plus, that there may have been something more sinister at play. And when I say that, uh, I, you know, she could have also had obviously psychological issues like disassociative disorder going on. But I, I'm pretty confident that my cousin Lizzie actually did take an axe and give her father and, and stepmother 40, you know, the the wax as we know from the nursery rhyme, but why did she do it? Was it 
sexual abuse, which a lot of people believe that's the case. Uh, was it for money? Uh, was it for uh, she just snapped and she had she was a sociopath? Those are things that I I'm I'm interested in. I, I I'm pretty confident that she did commit the murders, but did she act alone? Were there other people that were there there with her uh, and that participated in the murder? So that's the stuff that I'm more interested in as as a relative. All right, let's talk about this this book that I read, Ghosts of Boston. There are so many places and so many things that are very surprising, like mm-hmm. hotels, like the, um, uh, the, the the Parker House, for example, is amazing in some of the stuff you write about in there, like like Charles Dickens and 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 others uh, who have experienced. Uh, there's a story in there about somebody cleaning a mirror. And there's condensation on the mirror, and they believe that it was Charles Dickens breathing on the mirror. Yeah, Ken. <clears throat> so, in addition to writing books, I actually so I'm I'm an immersion journalist, so I try my best to spend a lot of time at a location uh, or locations before I write about them. So, I actually one of the first tours that I gave, uh, and I ended up giving tours throughout Boston, tours in Salem, uh, tours in Boston Harbor. But the first tour I gave was was actually at the Parker House. And so Parker House, and then also around in the Boston Common as well. And <clears throat> yeah, so that I actually had a personal experience. So there's that, what is it known as the Charles Dickens mirror, which is on the mezzanine level of, <clears throat> of the Parker House. And the legend is if you say Charles Dickens three times, something weird will happen. Well, I, you know, I, I would say that on my tours, I would say Charles Dickens, Charles Dickens, Charles Dickens, and nothing weird would happen. But one time I was actually shooting a photo uh, with for the book Goes to Boston, I was standing in front of the mirror, my back was facing the mirror, and my photographer, uh, Ryan Miner, was shooting the, the photo, and he's like, Sam, look behind you. And there was breathing on the mirror as if some, someone was inhaling and exhaling on the mirror. Uh, and I he was totally shocked. And actually, that was the last photo shoot that he and I uh, worked on because he was so scared by by what happened. So I do I do think that there there is uh, some a lot a lot of energy, a lot of residual energy at the Parker House. Uh, Charles Dickens did stay at the Parker House uh, twice, and he loved he loved Boston. He absolutely loved Boston. And the mirror was actually taken from the suite that he stayed at uh, when he was in, at the Parker House, which is the oldest continuously operated hotel in the country. You also talk a, a little bit about Stephen King. <laughs> yeah, so Stephen King, uh, the one of the, I've actually have seen Stephen King uh, in Boston because he loves the Red Sox. So he comes to Boston often. Uh, you know, he lives, as we know, he lived in Maine. He's actually, I think he's in Florida now. And I, um, you know, I, I, I've been a longtime Stephen King fan. Uh, when we w- would tell our tours about the Parker House, there was a whole legend associated with one of the rooms that supposedly had was a had a crime scene uh, where a salesman was uh, was either either uh, murdered someone or he uh, he had a, he's committed suicide. Uh, and there has been a, reports of a kind of like a nefarious kind of a. a a salesman uh, who supposedly haunts the room on the third floor. Well, I, the being that the um, the investigator that I am, I actually reached out to Stephen King, and I'm like, you know, uh, uh, can you actually confirm whether or not that this story inspired your short story that turned into a movie 1408? And I I reached out to Stephen King. Uh, he didn't get back to me, but his assistant did. She was lovely, and she told me that that is a legend that is actually not true. And so I, I he even though he has stayed at the Parker house and has stayed in Boston often, uh, that story that turned into a movie with John Cusack actually is not based on his personal experiences at the hotel. I uh, was surprised and gratified in reading this book. You mentioned two people that I actually knew very well when I worked at WBZ and worked with a guy named Larry Glick. Uh, someone either called us or sent us a letter about two people that lived in Monroe, Connecticut, that were psychic investigators, and they were Ed and Lorraine Warren. Did you know them or have any experiences with them? Well, I um, 
First of all, like the names Ed, Lorraine, and Warren are so important in the paranormal community. So, uh, did I know them? No, but I, I'm really I'm good friends with uh, their nephew John Zaffis, uh, and I'm I'm friends with a lot of people that they have that they worked with over their their uh, amazing career as demonologists in the community. So I have not met them. I corresponded with Lorraine. I actually feel really connected. Uh, with Lorraine, she passed recently, uh, but I still feel connected to her because I feel like that my skill set as a clairvoyant is very similar to her skill set. So I do think that you can know people without really have known them. And I, I know that sounds kind of creepy, but I, I really feel connected to both Ed and Lorraine Warren, not only by their their um, their legacy, but by the people that they knew and interacted with, and just their their lingering energy associated with many cases that I've worked on. Can you can you talk about any of the cases that you both have worked on with Lorraine, with Ed and Lorraine? Well, so I am a producer for a TV show called A Haunting. And so I was actually on the 100th episode of A Haunting. I can't really give too many details, but I will say that, that I, as a producer, I have revisited some cases that Ed and Lorraine worked on um, as a producer uh, uh, currently in development. So I can't really give any details, but I will say that I have worked on projects and I've met with people, uh, you know, another a person that I know very well is Andrea Perrin. Uh, and actually, I can't talk about this because we're just friends. But Andrea Perrin was living in the what was called the Conjuring House uh, in, in uh, Rhode Island. And I interviewed Andrea for my book uh, called Mass Murders. Uh, and she, uh, Andrea was um, is, is a good friend. And she was actually one of the children that were featured in the, the case, the Perrin family haunting from the 1970s. And then Lorraine famously uh, covered that. In fact, it, it became the basis for the movie, the first Conjuring movie. Okay. Um, let's talk about Ouija boards. A lot of people uh, use them, I guess. Are, are they a good way to contact spirits or, or have seances? And have you ever participated in any seances that have been successful? Okay, so I um, it, the TV show that I worked on called The Curse of Lizzie Borden. Uh, I was actually on on camera talent for that show. Uh, the sh the finale of the show actually is a séance. Uh, we did not use a Ouija board uh, for the séance, but we did connect with the spirits. I channeled uh, I channeled Eliza Borden, who was related to us, uh, not through blood, but through, uh, through marriage. Uh, her name, her name is Eliza Borden and she actually, uh, murdered her children, uh, back in uh, 40 years before the murder. So, uh, so the murders took place in 1892. Uh, and she actually lived right next door to uh, the Borden family, uh, uh, Andrew Borden and Abby Borden. So we had a seance. It actually was, um, great for television. It was very terrifying to be a part of it. Uh, my co-lead that I worked with, his name's Dave Strader. Uh, Dave Strader uh, started uh, automatic writing and started uh, like connecting with the spirits during the seance. Uh, my colleague, Lou Anjali, started getting taking taken over by the negative energy in the room. So I'm, I'm in a school that if you're going to use, use uh, seances, you have to be very, very careful. I do not recommend seances. Uh, Ouija boards, I'm, I'm very much personally against using spirit boards. I just did a, a there's a show that I worked on called, um, called A Haunting, but the episode that I worked on just aired last night called Inner Demons, and they used a, a spirit board. And every case that I've, I've seen that involves the spirit board turns into something dark so i'm i'm personally against spirit boards however i have seen people use them and use them without uh without issue but i think that you get a lot of a lot of uh newcomers to the paranormal wanting to connect with spirits and that's what they use they use a spirit board for communication and it goes dangerously awry really fast now when you say that can you give examples of that yeah, so when you look at the cases involving spirit boards, there what happens is uh, you're communicating with something. So uh, you know, a lot of times their spirits will present themselves as uh, you know, uh, so you, the, a child you're talking to a child or a loved one is coming through the spirit board, and that's fine. But what if it's actually not your loved one communicating, but something darker, something more sinister trying to communicate? 
through the spirit board. So it's taking the guise of uh, of a loved one, and you think you're talking to your uncle or your grandfather or your grandmother, but you're actually talking to something uh, something negative. So I've seen that happen time and time again. Uh, so what you think you're communicating with actually opens a door to uh, another dimension, perhaps, or to the dark to a darker uh, the darker entities that you see in a lot of these television shows. Uh, you know, and I so I think that it's just it, it's like a portal. So it cannot it, it can open up something you, that you don't know how to close. Are you familiar at all with the ghost of flight 401? Does that ring a bell with you at all? Not really, but can you can you uh, refresh my memory? I'm sure I may remember. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a story about and it was a true story about an airliner, an eastern airliner that left New York and crashed in the Everglades in Florida. And supposedly the captain and the co-pilot haunted subsequent Eastern airline flights. And they used a Ouija board with uh, the the co-captain's wife. And they asked the Ouija board, she asked the Ouija board when they thought they were connected with him, um, what, what his favorite beer was. And she was the only one that knew the answer. And the Ouija board spelled it out. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, to be able to use a Ouija board, you have to be able to put your hands on it. Uh, so I do think a lot of times that, you know, if she was actually touching the the planchette to move it around, maybe she actually was uh, maneuvering it to make to make it uh to make it say what it, she wanted it to say. Not to say that that I don't think that people are actually legitimately connecting with spirits because I do, but I I, I am in a school that uh, I don't need spirit boards to communicate with the the with ghosts or with the spirit realm. And some people do. So I, I you know if they're able to do it and to do it successfully, then um, then then so be it. But I but I've seen over and over again, Ken, uh, spirit boards being used and they open a door to a dark force and the dark force takes them over. So I, I, I've seen it more negative than more positive, to be honest with you. So you really believe that there are negative forces out there that can be um, started or communicated with through a Ouija board? Because I know people that have told me that, but I never believed it. Absolutely. I mean, if, if getting back to, to Ed and Lorraine Warren, Ed and Lorraine Warren were very much against spirit boards. And they, I mean, they, they were diehard Catholics. So that makes a lot of sense. You're, you're kind of trained uh, not to do, not to um, open up doors that you can't close. And so I, I, so Ed and Lorraine Warren were very much like everything that you're talking to through a spirit board was demo- like potentially demonic. Uh, I'm a little bit more uh, liberal when it comes to I, I don't think everything you talk to is demonic, but I do think that there are I do think that darkness does exist. And if you talk to Ed and Lorraine uh, when they were alive, they were very much like that was their mo- their their mission in life to to, to say the devil does exist. Uh, I don't necessarily know if I believe in um, sort of the biblical demons that they talked about and they dealt with. Uh, I do think that uh, that there has been darkness that I've encountered. And if you watch the Curse of Lizzie Borden, the show that I was on, we confronted what I can only say is potentially um, something really dark. Uh, it, it really was a negative force that we were dealing with. and was almost in over my head on that case. But I, so I've seen it firsthand, whether or not I want to say that it's actually a demon, I'm not sure, Ken, but I, I think that um, I, I'm in the school, maybe it's something interdimensional. Uh, so it's maybe from another dimension, but I don't know if I necessarily think it's a, it's a demon or demonic. Okay. If somebody decides they want to go to a seance, tell me what what happens when it starts, how long it starts, what the process is, et cetera, et cetera. So as someone who has uh, has done a couple of seances myself and has led seances, the first thing you want to do is you want to gather in a circle uh, so you, and you also all hold hands. Uh, you usually have candles on the table in front of you. So you usually have uh, three candles uh, and you also uh, sometimes have a bell to kind of like communicate with the spirits. So 
I'm, you know, when we, when I've done seances before, I don't use spirit boards. Some people do, they want to use the spirit boards as a, as a form to communicate with the spirits that enter the room. Uh, so you start holding hands and then I'm big about, uh, protection. So I actually do start off with raising the crystal shield of protection, I call it. Uh, and I do sort of like a chant where I uh, imagine a white light of protection around me and my, my, the people around, but we're also opening up to the spirit realm too. So we're kind of, we're putting a shield around us, but we're also um, asking the spirits that we want to communicate with to come into the room, but to keep the bad spirits out. So, uh, so I, and then, then we will do what is called lifting the veil. Uh, when you lift the veil, you lift the veil between the living and the dead. Uh, and you basically kind of chant, you like, I lift the veil without a doubt, the good spirits and the bad spirits out. And you basically ask the good spirits to come into the room and you say this three times and you say it with a lot of passion. Uh, then you, uh, then you, hit the table and you start holding hands again. And then people in the, in the circle start communicating with spirits. Uh, a lot of times um, you, you have to have people that are more in the gifted realm, Ken, to be able to, uh, to communicate with spirits. But I've seen people who are complete skeptics actually get taken over during a seance. So uh, I think it, it's, again, I think it's very dangerous. I don't recommend it unless you are very knowledgeable in the field of the paranormal field. Uh, I've always heard that midnight is the best time to try anything like that. Is that true? Or can you do it anytime in the daytime or the evening? You can do it anytime during the daytime or the evening. If you want to lift the veil between the living and the dead, they actually see, they, they call it the witching hour. I think it's more superstition than anything. Um, I've also had more paranormal experiences at three in the morning. I, I worked the overnight shift at a hotel uh, and it, actually at a haunted hotel in, uh, in Concord, Mass., uh, and so I, I think that you have more experiences during, uh, during th actually at 3 a.m. from my personal experience than you do at midnight, but that they believe that's when the, the veil between the living and the dead is the most thinnest. They also believe Halloween is also when the veil between the living and the dead is thin as well. But I've done, I've done, I've lifted the veil between the living and the dead, uh, you know, during the day as well. So for me personally, it doesn't matter, but it's a lot more spooky at midnight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I love this stuff, but I've never done anything. I've always been curious about, I mean, I've heard stories of people that have been in cemeteries after midnight and turned on a tape recorder. And when they play the tape back, they could hear voices. Do you, do you know anything about that? Yeah, so that's called electric uh, electronic voice phenomenon, and that is when you're investigating a lot of these haunted locations. That is what we actually use for spirit communication. So we'll ask questions like, "Is there anybody with us here?" And you uh, you you can do what is called a burst session. You uh, you play the question, you give it some time for the spirit to respond, then you play it back, and you can sometimes hear a voice on the recorder. It doesn't have to be a cemetery; it could be a haunted location. But a lot of the shows that I've worked on, um, that's what we do. So it's uh, so use a recorder. I like to use old school tape recorders, but a lot of a lot of the the kids in the paranormal uh, they use sort of like the digital tape recorders uh, for the burst sessions. So I uh, yeah, so that's definitely something that we do as uh, paranormal investigators. Let's talk about the difference between psychic hunters and psychic investigators. What's the difference? You said psychic hunters? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't I don't really know the difference between so uh, I I always think it's I like there there's a show called Ghost Hunters and I personally um I never hunt ghosts. Ghosts hunt me. So I don't have to hunt ghosts. <laughs> it's like, like they, they come to me. Like they don't, I don't really have to hunt them. Um, but I, and I also think that the word haunting is really kind of, um, you know, it's disrespectful to the spirits. I mean, these are a lot of the spirits that I deal with were, were humans that have passed and they don't know that they're dead. So I think it's disrespectful to hunt ghosts, but I, as someone who, um, who is a, you know, a, identifies as a clairvoyant and also a paranormal investigator, paranormal researcher. Um, I think that 
that definitely like when you when you interact with spirits if you show them the respect they will respect you back so um, if you go in with an open heart and you really want to tell their story and tell their story correctly they're going to respond to you so like, i that's what i try to do um i try to i try to communicate as someone who uh you know connect strongly with those who have been who have been marginalized by society. So a lot of the spirits that I interact with for my books, like my his, my my recent book called Ghosts of the American Revolution, I didn't want to talk to uh, George Washington or Ben Franklin, even though I did feature them in my book. I wanted to talk to the others, the ones that were marginalized by history, the ones that African-American soldiers who fought during the American Revolution, who fought for their freedom and was they were not given their freedom, even though they fought valiantly during the Revolutionary War uh, for the women, the women who uh, were caught in the, the line of fire, who lost loved ones during the civil the civil war, the Revolutionary War. Uh, so I want to I, I want to give a voice to those who are often forgotten by history. Now, one of the people that you and I briefly talked about was somebody that I've always been fascinated with, and that was Harry Houdini. Now, he spent a lot of time trying to debunk spiritualism, but yet people tried to contact him to get him to, to try and come back to life. And there's a recording that I have heard of his wife actually trying to do this. And they did it for like 10 years after his death uh, in 1926. Uh, is the interest in spiritualism and that kind of thing has it increased or decreased over the years? I think the the interest in spiritualism. So spiritualism is a little different than what uh, what you see on television now. Paranormal investigation. Uh, spiritualism was a movement in the late eighteen hundreds. Uh, it involves psychics and a lot of. Uh, there was a lot of hoaxes involved. I mean, there was a lot of like table te- you know, tables like uh, vibrating and. Uh, the the Fox sisters kind of like knocking on the 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 window, knocking on the on the table uh, for responses. So there was a lot of a lot of hoaxes involved with what what we know as spiritualism. It doesn't mean what they were doing was was an actual spiritual spirit communication. But what what I have seen though is sort of the the uh, evolving of paranormal or spirit communication since since Houdini, uh, and a lot of times, a lot of the paranormal investigators actually don't allow psychics in their investigations. Uh, so, you know, like I I I know how to investigate without being a psychic. I can turn it off and go into an investigation as a historian and still do the use the methodology to be able to communicate with spirits using tools as opposed to my gifts as a clairvoyant so i think that what what the popularity actually is way more now because of pop culture you look at the travel channel which i'm on a lot uh all the shows are paranormal shows uh you look at shows like ghost hunters you look at ghost adventures you look at uh, the long the laundry list of paranormal themed shows. And now you look at the movies that are out and the popularity of those movies, like the conjuring franchise, everybody's talking about ghosts. And I think that, um, so the popularity is actually through the roof. And you also see that the amount percentage of people who believe in the paranormal is a lot higher than it was back even 10 years ago, Ken, when I, when I first started writing about the paranormal, I did lectures at the like Boston public library. And I remember that one of the, like, the first group of people that bought my books, like they were really interested in ghosts, like, like my first book goes to Boston that you read, uh, but they didn't want people to, to see them with my books. So they asked to put my book in a brown paper bag, like it was like ghost porn uh, 10 years ago. And so they, they basically, they they have grown a lot since then. And a lot of it's the acceptance and pop culture towards ghosts and towards the paranormal investigators that you see on television. One of the things that you talk about in here is the Charles Street Jail in Boston. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so the the so I've written the, now I'm up on 15 books. That was my first book. So remembering every little bit, like a little piece to the Charles Street Jail. So I, I think that Charles Street Jail is is that is it the jail that now is the the Liberty Hotel? Yes, yes. Okay, yeah. So the Charles Street Jail was a, an example of of a location that should be haunted, but according to 
the people that I talked to at the Liberty Hotel that it's not. However, they did have, uh, so there was the Charles Street Jail had a lot of notorious, uh, you know, gangsters that stayed there. I know Harry Houdini was, would also do, uh, he actually was not at the Charles Street Jail, but he would do a lot of his, his promos at uh, the Salem Jail, for example. So so, uh, but Charles Street Jail is not where he was at, but they, you had the Boston Strangler stay there, uh, DeSalvo, and you had uh, gangsters stay there as well. So it was kind of like a the, like the go-to place in Boston for uh, for the high-profile criminals. And so that was converted to a, uh, a posh hotel, the Liberty Hotel. Uh, and a lot of people that go there, they love it because it has like this, um, this mobster-themed uh, vibe to it, including like some of the original original bars from the Charles Street Jail still uh, still where you can uh, actually touch them and, and interact with the, the jail cells. But what they supposedly did is they had Buddhist monks uh, come in and do a cleansing before they t- converted it to a hotel. And they say they haven't had any uh, negative paranormal experiences at that location since since the cleansing. And I have to disagree. I mean, I've heard multiple uh, stories, but when you have management say that they haven't had any experiences and they want that to be what you put in your book, then you have to go along with it. All right. Is there, or have you talked with people that have had verbal communications with ghosts? Uh, I know you talk about instances where people be on a tour and, and someone would, would, take them by the shoulder and give them a shove and they'd look behind them and there was nobody there. But what about verbal communication? Have you ever had any examples of that with people? Yeah. So I identify uh, as clairvoyant. So clairvoyant actually is where you um, use, so it's to, you see spirits and you, uh, sometimes you see it in your mind's eye. Sometimes you see it, uh, see it out in the, um, you know, actually see them physically manifest. The only difference is they don't have feet. There's some people what are known are in the Claire family known as Claire audience, and they can actually hear spirits communicate to them and talk to them. And sometimes they're actual, like their word, like this full sentences. So you can hear the spirit say, Oh, they're saying this, uh, like, hi, Sam, or welcome, which is what I experienced at the Omni Parker house. When I walked in, I heard the word welcome, uh, when I walked in, sometimes you hear uh, tones and the tones are sometimes high pitched tones, which I'm actually getting right now, Ken talking to you. So it's a, it's a high pitched tone. Usually it's in your right ear uh, and you, you'll base like, it's a form of higher, um, like you could say maybe angels or spirits trying to communicate with you uh, and they'll communicate in a, in a, in a higher pitched tone and trying to figure out what they're trying to say is the, is the, um, the mystery as someone that, you know, even as a clairvoyant, I'll get messages, uh, visual messages, but I'm not really sure what they're trying to communicate to me. What's the most terrifying thing that has happened to you other than your grandfather, if any? Oh, I've had a lot of terrifying experiences. If you follow my career, it's like one terrifying experience after another. <laughs> um, but I, I, I mean, it's not like I've been looking for it, Ken. I mean, a lot of, a lot of when I, when I started writing my, my first books, Goes to Boston and Goes to Cambridge and then Goes to Salem, uh, I was very much on the not involved with the investigations. I would talk to people who actually investigated. So I, I was kind of chicken, I guess, like the paranormal chicken that, that I, so I was afraid to kind of go and actually communicate with spirits. But then I started, people wanted me to, to like, well, what are your experiences? And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm scared. So that started off and I started actually immersing myself at the location and actually turning my recorder to, from people to the ghosts and actually asking ghost questions. And actually they responded. Uh, but then things started got getting darker for me. Uh, the more and more I uh, went in that realm, the darker they got. I had uh, I worked on the U.S.'s Salem and Quincy, Mass. for <clears throat> about a month and a half, and I I I saw so much. It wasn't I I was terrified for other people on my crew getting attacked by an unseen force. So it's been, I'm not really worried about me per se. I know how to protect myself. I'm worried about people who are novices and the paranormal who may be with me getting attacked and me witnessing them getting attacked. So to me, that's the most terrifying seeing the helplessness of uh, loved ones. Like my, my, I've had female, um, 
friends who I've been with, who I see get scratched or uh, be, being chased off the U.S. asylum, which happened with my friend Colleen. Um, so it's more about seeing that and being helpless and not being able to help them because it's an unseen force. All right. When you say you protect yourself, what do you mean by that? And what does one have to do? Well, I've learned to do a whole ritual of protection because because of, of seeing what happens to other people. So I do a crystal shield of protection and it's kind of like a chant. Um, I do, I basically raise a crystal shield and um, I do a chant, Ura Shokrio, Ura Shokrio, Ura Shokrio, Shakare, 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 Sahiki, 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 protection, protection, protection. And then I do Zonar, 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 and I send it out around me. So I create a bubble around me, but it, what that does, it doesn't block out uh, all spirits. It allows the good spirits to come in and the bad ones to stay out. So I do that out in the field. I do Palo Santo. Uh, I, I, I have uh, her selenite harmonizers that I use. They're actually crisp, like really large crystals that I use to help build a crystal shield. So actually every time I go to a haunted location, I, I raise a crystal shield. My problems have been when I haven't done that and see, I'm, I'm at, like, I had a situation where I was <clears throat> being filmed for a TV show. I was in Salem and actually uh, got attacked while I was filming. Uh, and I started channeling something and I didn't want to channel. I was actually talking about the history of Salem and not the ghosts and watching that, um, like not protecting myself and knowing that I should have protected myself before doing that. So I, I suggest, I, I basically try my best to protect myself every time I go to a location with the crystal shield of protection, with the white light of protection, with the Palo Santo, uh, and with uh, have, working with a shaman. If I ever get anything attached to me, which I have, uh, I have a friend, Michael Robichaud, who's a shaman who will remove the negative energy from me. I used to listen to a gentleman named Art Linkletter, and he used to have a radio show called Art Linkletter's House Party. And he had somebody on the air once who told a story about being in a supermarket and her eyes were drawn to this woman and she followed this woman. She, whatever, had this compulsion to follow her. And all of a sudden the woman disappeared into thin air. And this lady went home and told her mother about it. And she said, you've just described your great grandmother whom you have never seen before or met. You ever heard any stories like that? Yeah, my whole life. I mean, like that, <laughs> that that's like the story of my life. I, I definitely have uh, experienced and heard multiple stories of people seeing their loved ones. Sometimes, a lot of times, I think that, that loved ones especially are wary of coming through because they know that they will scare people. So the idea that she saw her grandmother at a store and she was following her uh, is kind of similar. I think that maybe they will show you what you can handle. And I know for me, because I was so scared, once my grandfather kind of revealed himself to me, I know he has been with me for most of my life. He's my spirit guide now, but I, I was afraid. So he's not going to to freak me out because he loves me. So I think that um, the spirit, a lot of times you'll hear people talk about dreams and dream communication with their loved ones. And that's because they can handle it in their dreams. They're less terrified uh, when they're, when they're in their a dream state, uh, but actually seeing something when, when you're uh, in a store or in a location that, that doesn't, it's not threatening. Uh, it's definitely something that, that a loved one would do versus something more negative. How about psychic photographs? Do you know about those or had experience with any of that where you take a picture somewhere and, and the relative of, of, I don't know exactly how it works, but I, but I've heard of it. Do you know about that? Yeah. So that, that was a hoax that happened in the 1800s. Uh, his name is Mumler. Uh, he would actually take pictures of, uh, of, of, and that's during the spiritualism movement as well, uh, where he, and he actually was Boston based too, but he would take a picture of a loved one and there would be the spirit of their loved one next to them. Uh, the famous one of course is, uh, uh, Lincoln and, and his wife, uh, she was actually sitting there and then you can see the ghost of Lincoln behind her. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that spirit photographs from the 1800s actually did set, uh, kind of probably influenced people like 
like uh, Harry Houdini to be skeptical of of uh, of psychics and of the spiritualism movement. And I, you know, I'm I'm definitely cautious of it too. I mean, I mean, with someone like that was to, that's blatantly a hoax. However, it did give peace to to people, and it did it did. Um, you know, it did kind of serve, it made Mary Todd Lincoln, uh, it made her happy. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, so I do know about the spirit photographs, but I know that they are definitely hundred percent a hoax. Have you spent time in haunted cemeteries after midnight and had any experiences? So I'm kind of a chicken, Ken. Uh, so I, I, try, I really am. I mean, like I, 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 everyone's like, you know, like, did you do this? I, I don't hunt. I, I, I kind of accidentally fall into really, really kind of crazy situations. I actually wrote a book called 13 Most Haunted Cemeteries in New England. Uh, so I did go to some of the most haunted cemeteries uh, for that book. But I also, I also, I, I you know, I, I have gone into cemeteries after midnight because I'm being called out there. Uh, Concord, Concord, Massachusetts is a perfect example of me being called out to a cemetery. It's actually, um, so there's a cemetery in Concord, but there's uh, there's the North Bridge that I was called to. And I actually had an experience at North Bridge, which is where the Battle of Concord and Lexington took place uh, in the during the American Revolution. And a lot of stuff happened there. And it actually led to me writing my book, Ghosts of the American Revolution. So yes, I have spent uh, late nights in cemeteries, but it's not because I, I'm looking for something it's because i'm being called there one of the things you talk about in this book that i read which is really scary are elevators that will go to a floor where they're supposedly like in the omni house or the parker house charles dickens used to stay on the third floor and elevators will go there or go past there and people are not allowed to get on the elevators yeah, so some locations, and uh, and I did talk a lot about elevators in my book, and I, I'm scared of elevators too, Ken. Like 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 elevators. <laughs> I, don't, I I've had I've never had a ghostly encounter in an elevator, but I have been stuck in an elevator, and like that to me is like my greatest fear is to be stuck in an elevator. Uh, but yeah, like there's been a lots of reports of elevators having a mind on their of their own. I actually had a situation in Salem, uh, so I I I do work overnights at hotels and I was working at an overnight hotel in Salem that supposedly was not haunted, but I saw what looked like a black cloud or black smoke go into the elevator and then go to kind of like take an elevator ride down to the basement. Now the weird thing is to be able to go down to the basement, you have to have a special code. So I don't know how this black cloud or black smoke got into the elevator, it opens up, and then it takes an elevator ride, ride down to the basement when there's no way to get down to the basement unless you hit a special code. So I've seen weird stuff with elevators. I know when I was giving my tours at the Parker House that we would always uh, say Charles Dickens, Charles Dickens, Charles Dickens, and then the elevator would mysteriously open right when I would say Charles Dickens the third time, and we were like, we would like all freak out. <laughs> okay, yeah. It would open up right when we would say Charles Dickens three times. So yeah, I mean, I, I've seen weird things happen. Um, I've seen, you know, I, I, I definitely have experienced uh, creepy elevator rides and where you know that there may be something else in the elevator with you while you're going to uh, upper floors. And also just being scared of elevators, period. I just, I'd rather take the stairs. <laughs> uh, no, I've, I've never been afraid of elevators. Um, although after I read this book, I kind <laughs> It, it, it is, does feel a little weird the next time I get into an elevator. Um, only been stuck in one once or twice at City Hall in Boston, but luckily it wasn't for a very, it wasn't for a very long time. Yeah. Now, again, when I worked with Larry Glick, one of the people that we used to talk to a great deal was Edward Rose Snow. And he wrote a book called Ghosts, Gales, and Gold. Um, did, are you familiar with that or did you know snow at all? 
Yeah, so Edward Rowe Snow is another person that I look majorly look up to. I never met him. He actually passed before uh, I started writing my books. But I also felt like the, because I, I've given tours in Boston Harbor, so a lot of a lot of uh, his legacy still lingers within my books. Um, and so I, I have a lot of his books that have been signed by him that I've gotten through like eBay or through uh, you know fr- friends giving me signed copies of his books. Uh, but yeah, he to me, single-handedly saved uh, the, the tourism industry in Boston Harbor. He, uh, unfortunately, and a lot of people are going to get upset at me seeing this, but he um, c- created the ghost, the, the lady in black on George's Island. Uh, but there was reports year, like, for many years before uh, Edward Rose Snow talked about the lady in black uh, and get, kind of giving her a, a, a whole backstory, Melanie Lanier. Uh, but there were reports of what looked like a black mass on George's Island and Fort Warren before that. So he didn't kind of pull it out of thin air, but he did create a whole character that turned into a kind of like a, a, a tourist attraction. Uh, and, and it also, it single-handedly saved Boston Harbor, going, all the tours going to George's Island to see the lady in black. I have never been to the Salem Witch Museum. Have you been there? And what would you be in for if you went? So I actually worked shortly at the Salem Witch Museum. I think a lot of there's a lot of um, stuff in Salem that has been around for many, many, many years and kind of needs an update. <laughs> it's like you have a lot of stuff that's been around since like the 60s and 70s. I, I will give this the Salem Witch Museum is a really great spot for people who have never uh, been to Salem and they want sort of the, uh, you know, the, the tourist experience in Salem, go go to the Salem Witch Museum. Uh, they do a really great job at factually telling what happened in 1692 when 20 innocent men and women were accused and executed for witchcraft. So if you want to know the basics about the Salem Witch Trials, then go to the museum. Um, I will say that some of the wax figures are a little hokey uh, in the recreation, but they're historically accurate. So I think that that's, that's definitely something that I, you know, I support. Did you ever know uh, a, a lady, at least when I came to Boston, who was very famous, Lori Cabot? Yeah, so basically, I, I interviewed Lori Cabot, who was the, the official witch of Salem, a few years ago for my book, Wicked Salem. And she definitely was the highlight of my career talking to her. And while we were talking, uh, she doesn't actually believe in ghosts, but she, uh, while we were talking, we actually heard what sounded like uh, like knocking on the wall. And she was like, oh, that's just my my Cornish knockers. Uh, apparently, she, she believes in fairies, but she doesn't believe in ghosts. <laughs> so we, all this really bizarre things happened while we were talking, and it just was a magical interview. So she's still alive and well. She's still alive and well. I, I know that when I interviewed her, she was smart as a whip. A lot of people were saying, oh, Lori's sick. And Lori, look, she was, I mean, she, she of course, is, uh, she's older. So she she definitely had, um, you know, I had to come to her, into her office. But she was smart as a whip. I, I, will, I will say that. And this was only a few years ago. Did, did she ever talk about or believe in, in literally being able to cast spells? If somebody asked her to do that she's very much in her in her um she's she to me has been an advocate for the the wiccan community her whole life i mean she basically has fought the stereotypes of the witch on broom uh stereotype and silhouettes and the kind of like the the, the witches that you see in movies like wizard of oz and you know throughout pop culture so she's really big about uh dispelling the myths and, and misconceptions associated with witchcraft but however, she does do spells. So yeah, she could, she does spells, but she doesn't, we talked about cursing. Like, does she actually curse anyone? And she, she's a, she, her whole philosophy as a witch uh, and as, as someone who is a high priestess and has actually trained hundreds of, of people in her tradition is that everything that you put out comes back to you three times. So you will never curse anyone because that will come back to you three times and you don't want to be cursed three times. So uh, she's a, like what kind of she believes in karma. It's like the what goes around comes around. So you don't you actually do spells to help people, not to hurt people. One other thing I'd like to ask you about that we had a brief discussion of uh, a week or so ago, and we tried to put this thing together was and is the Amityville horror. 
Yeah, so the Amityville horror case is it's the iconic case and actually was one of the first cases that I remember reading about and watching television and hearing the case when I was a young a young child. But yeah, the Amityville horror uh, is is famous because of the movie, because of the book, uh, because of the um, the time it came out. It was during the era of what we call satanic panic, and also the fact that Ed and Lorraine Warren worked on that case, as well as Hans Holzer, who's another one of my idols in the paranormal field. So it's a case that involved. There was a, 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 a the murder of uh, the DeFeos uh, happened at that house, and one year later, the the Lutz family moves in. Uh, they supposedly experienced all sorts of insanely crazy things in the house and then they flee the house in terror uh, and the rain warrant come and they ask they validate what they picked up uh including uh seeing capturing a photo of what looks like a like a little zombie kid uh which oddly looked a lot like one of the the boys from the from the defeo family that were murdered in the house so i do think that when you have a something as horrific as uh, a you know a son killing his entire family is going to leave a psychic imprint at the house. So I do think that there is lingering energy at the house. Do I think it was as intense or demonic as it's portrayed in the movies? I don't. I don't think it's, it was that bad. But I wasn't there, so I can't judge. I will say that I I trust Lorraine Warren and I trust what she picked up, and I trust that she picked up something negative. All right. Um... Is there a way that people who might be interested can contact you? Do you have a website that you could give out? Yes. So can I have a website called sambaltrusis.com? It's S-A-M-B-A-L-T-R-U-S-I-S.com. You can also uh, go to Amazon and you type in my name and I have up to 15 books available. Uh, My goal is to have, and also Ken, this is something really important to me for the the sight impaired community to have more of my audio books available for that community because I think it's important for access for everyone. All right, listen, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. Uh, I don't know about anybody else's listening, but my hair can stand up on end listening to some of these stories. This is, <laughs> this is very fascinating. You are a fascinating individual. And I thank you so much for giving of your time and patience and discussing stuff that is kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ken, it was a pleasure talking to you. And, I, and I, again, I really had, it was an honor to be on your show. Uh, I, I know your whole backstory and your history as a, as a radio announcer. So I definitely have a lot of respect for you. Well, I appreciate that. And that goes double for me. Anybody that can, can deal with the stuff that we talked about and still be able to live a normal life. My God, congratulations <laughs> to you, sir. I really, I really admire anyone. I don't think I've ever talked with anybody as closely connected other than Ed and Lorraine Warren with, with the paranormal as you. Yeah. Um, actually, I did. The, the, the guy who wrote the book, The Ghost of Flight 401, was, was one, a pilot named John Fuller. And um, uh, so I did talk with him about that book. So I have talked with other people, but I'll tell you, that book is very scary. If you want a good book, I would grab that and read that. Well, it sounds good. And now I'm going to read it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again, Sam. I appreciate it. That will do it for this edition of City Talk. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's K-J-M-E-Y-E-R-7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.